new sermon series. And the title of the sermon series was determined uh, quite a while ago. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't in recent days that this title of Enough's Enough uh, was uh, that we came up with this. It's actually, um, it was in reference to the pandemic that was going on. There was anticipation that this fall there would be a political uh, posturing that would happen and the feeling would be enough's enough. Well, little did we know that our air would be full of smoke uh, and that the news for 2020 continues to get better and better with each passing day. Probably at your wit's end at this point, just saying enough's enough's enough with all these things. If only there was a better story uh, for our lives right now. Well, I think Colossians is such a story. It relays a story, at least. It speaks to a, a better word for, for you and for me uh, for the coming days. And so we do well to tune our ear uh, to what, what God might say. And we, our hope is that as together we gather around this word, uh, as we look at Colossians here over a number of weeks and then uh, one week in Philemon, that we might hear in all of this uh, God's love, uh, God's grace, and that we might live into that better story. Well, make no mistake, I think we know this, imprisonment, being in prison, can cause incredible harm uh, to a person. But it also provides the ability for someone uh, to be in a place where they might gather their thoughts, where they might crystallize their thinking, where they might even sharpen their focus and in, intent. And here we, we think about folks that are in prison, particularly in our, in our own age, um, in our own time, we think about how some of the writings that have been left behind by folks that have been in prison, things that were written and thought about during those times, have actually served to be a good word for us, uh, particularly because of the weight that they carry due to the struggle of the individual writing. Let me give you a couple examples here. One off the bat that comes to mind is uh, the eight, April 16, 1963, incarceration and writing of Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I might say the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. here. Remember that he wrote what is now the famous letter from a Birmingham jail. And in that letter, uh, King uh, writes an open letter that argues for the moral responsibility to break unjust laws. And in that, King says that the intent here is to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice. And there he sets forth that in the letter, a, a prophetic call in many ways uh, spelled out there. Between November 7th, 1962 and February 11th, 1990, uh, we know that Nelson Mandela was incarcerated in, in South Africa. And during that span, he literally wrote hundreds of letters. Back in 2018, after he had died, in celebration of his 100th birthday, there was actually a volume that was published that included about 250 of those, those letters. We know that uh, book publishers will publish books when they know that there's a ready audience for that. Again, tells us of someone's uh, time spent in incarceration when they've been imprisoned, uh, how their words can have deep meaning. Or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we know, was incarcerated in Nazi Germany uh, during the Second World War. And during that time, he actually wrote letters and papers that were, uh, in some cases, smuggled out of that prison. And they were later published after the war. And I was reading this past week, uh, one uh, source actually uh, referred to them, calling them a classic theological text of the 20th century, and they're right. Uh, as we read of, of Bonhoeffer's uh, struggle, but also questions that he wrestles with during that time. Again, weight lend to those because of that time in prison, but even the sharp focus about what it means, what does life mean. 
Let me offer one more here for us to consider. At some point near the middle of the first century, the Apostle Paul was imprisoned. There's some debate about whether or not the imprisonment that we have in mind here is one that was in Rome. If so, that would place uh, the writings during that time somewhere in the early 60s. Possibly it was in Ephesus. That's another place the argument, if that's the case, somewhere in the mid-50s of the first century. But either way, it's during this imprisonment, during this time in in Paul's life where he's he's in prison, that he writes uh, four New Testament books that that carry great weight for the church uh, now and have been for centuries now, even millennia. He writes Ephesians and Philippians. He writes Colossians and Philemon. I find it helpful for us as we begin into this series to, to just remember where Paul was at, to remember Paul's situation as this letter is being written. There's a sense that we might see Paul in this kind of scholarly location, seated at a desk, sitting down and writing a letter uh, to a group of friends and everything is fine, but that's, that's far from what we see here. Arguing that the imprisonment was in Ephesus, uh, N.T. Wright and Michael Byrd in an outstanding volume called The New Testament in Its World that was recently published, they talk about this as being his experience. Searing hardship, brokenness, and anxiety. That's how they talk about Paul's experience in prison. In fact, the picture becomes even starker when they write, Paul is probably malnourished and short of sleep. He may well have suffered horrible illness. He will certainly have been beaten up by guards and perhaps by other prisoners. He feels helpless and alone in the dark and damp with the smell of rot, excrement, and death all around him. Picture him then either scribbling away on a small sheet of papyrus, squinting for lack of light, or else hearing at last someone whispering through a slot in the door, talking to a visiting colleague and telling him what to put in a, in a letter. That's a far different picture than some kind of nice, docile location. So emerging from this prison hardship, Colossians begins with a tone that is quite remarkable, and I might add somewhat surprising here, where we might expect to hear of his unjust imprisonment or about his awful conditions that he's living in here or his substandard surroundings. Perhaps there might be even an appeal here we might suspect uh, for the reader's sympathies, if not their pity. That's what we might expect for someone who's in this type of situation. But for Paul and Colossians, we're going to find an altogether different tone. God has and is doing something so powerfully transformational in the lives of the author here, also the reader, that Paul's response to this gospel, this message, is this. And this is what we're going to hear. Gratitude. So let's turn our attention to this letter and unpack each of the pieces here. First, we start out with this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. What a, what a word of transformation right from the get-go. Just with a, just with a few words here. Paul, that's a Gentile variation of this name, uh, Saul, that we hear uh, in Scripture. Reminds the reader of transformation, particularly noteworthy when you think about the fact that he might adopt this Gentile identity, this Gentile version of his name, when we read that Paul was someone who's known as being zealous and devout in Philippians chapter 3. And so this was a person who's a Hebrew of Hebrews, and yet here he is adopting this Gentile name. But now he's also known as an apostle, this apostolos, this one who literally means who is sent out. 
Of course, the dramatic call sending conversion uh, plays out in Acts chapter 9, if you go back and read that story of how how Paul's conversion took place. But when we read that story, you actually see uh, there's a conversation that's held between a disciple who's described uh, to be in Damascus named Ananias and Jesus. Yes, that Jesus. And this conversation occurs in a vision at one point where Jesus says in the conversation what he expects or what the role Paul will play going forward. Here's what Jesus says. He is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. From zealous persecutor of the earliest church to Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to all the world. That's far, far different than what we hear at the beginning of Acts chapter 9 of one who is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's a profound statement of transformation, just even from the identification of who the writer is here. And all this happens, according to our text in Colossians, by the will of God. God made it happen. And that's reminiscent of Jesus' own words to his disciples in John chapter 15, where he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. A choosing that is entirely consistent with God's choosing of emissaries throughout the scriptures and throughout history. Think about last week, I'd mentioned Isaiah chapter 41, where God speaks of Israel being chosen. You can go even earlier to Deuteronomy chapter 7 and see the same type of choosing language in verse 7 of that chapter. As God chooses, God also sends. And that's also played out in John's gospel. Jesus again to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Paul is an apostle because of Jesus' calling and Jesus' sending. And this stems from God's own gracious actions in Christ. William Barclay, who's a popular uh, devotional commentator, is probably a good way to talk about him, a generation or two uh, earlier than our own time, uh, but still, remarkably, his volumes are still being published and, and still being purchased. That might be the more remarkable part there. But Barclay notes this. He says, We are not what we have made ourselves, but what God has made us. So Paul is not what you might call a self-made man. None of us really are. We're not self-made people here. In fact, even the recipients of this letter are identified as saints there in your text, uh, pulling on the Greek word hagias or based on the word holy. That identity is loaded with Old Testament symbolism. It draws on the idea of a nation that's called out among all the world to be God's own people. Notice Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 5. The whole earth is mine, this is God speaking, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. The Colossian church here is identified as God's own people. They're identified as holy and faithful. In fact, Paul will call them Adelphoi. He'll call them sisters and brothers. He also refers to Timothy as his brother there. It's Adolphos using the same type of language. It speaks to close familial connection uh, that they share. And that connection is covenant language. It's God's calling of a people who are not related, but they are made related through covenant with their creator. And this connection, this bond, is formed in Christ. Those are some radical statements right off the bat about who these people, these non-Jewish audience who they have become in Christ. So let's recap here, all right? The persecutor, the persecutor of the church becomes an apostle. That's transformation. 
The disinherited become God's own people and heirs to the kingdom. That's transformation. So how does one respond to such great transformation? The way Paul does it is he says this again. Gratitude. It's gratitude. Not some kind of veiled attempt to display one's fortune. Uh, we see that in, in our own culture. Uh, for a while there, it was really popular to put hashtag blessed after everything. Uh, kind of this veiled way to display how fortunate we might be. Uh, but to do so with real gratitude and thanksgiving for what has been achieved. I read an article this past week that noted, and this was according to research by the UCLA uh, Mindfulness Awareness Research Center, uh, it said this, it said, regularly expressing gratitude, the quality of being thankful and the readiness to show appreciation literally changes the molecular structure of the brain. It said, when I say it keeps gray matter functioning, it makes us healthier and happier. Well, if that's true, uh, then despite his imprisonment, Paul is happy and has a healthy brain. Uh, if I could summarize Colossians 1 here. He writes this in verse 3, In our prayers for you, we always thank God. Like I said, healthy and happy. But what exactly is Paul grateful for here? Well, the report that he received, and what I might call the word on the street, was of the Colossian church's faith in Christ Jesus and in their love for all the saints. We see that in verse 4. The latter is reminiscent of what Jesus said would be a quality of Christian discipleship or what his disciples would exude. He says this in John chapter 13, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I love how love just keeps coming back over and over and that, how Jesus just keeps reminding them over and over. It seems that this congregation at Colossae, that they were living into that command. When we read uh, this first section carefully, we also know that the initial fruit of the gospel here uh, and the one that encourages Paul here is it's not the church's growth in understanding and wisdom and knowledge. Though those are important, that's not what he really is responding to right away here from the report from Epaphras. It's not their adherence to a holiness code or even what we might call Christian obedience at this point. No, the initial evidence here uh, in Colossians that is reported to Paul that he is thankful for is the church's love in the Spirit. That's not, that seems like easy stuff. It seems like, oh, that's, that's nothing. That's, that's, that just comes with the territory. That's, that's easy for us. It's, it's not as easy as it sounds. I think we know that, and we know it particularly in our own culture in our own day. One of the big culprits that we face today that dissuades us from living into the same command is, is a term that uh, we know as polarization. We see it in our nation. Uh, we see it in our community. Uh, we sometimes see it in our own families. We also see it in the church. Dan White Jr., who's a church planner in Syracuse, New York, uh, wrote an article entitled, Can the Church Overcome Polarization? If you go out and visit my Facebook page, you can see the whole article uh, in total there. But I do want to lift out one part from that article. Here's what Dan shares in regards to his own story. And this is someone who's serving as a church planner, uh, talking about his own congregation. He said, One Sunday after church, a dear person approached me to share she had decided to leave our church. She gently stated, Dan, I don't feel safe in this church knowing there are liberals here who believe so differently. I just can't relax. 
I feel like I'm being judged. He goes on to say, I tried desperately to communicate safety and that her voice was valued, but it wasn't enough. She goes on, he goes on to write this. Fast forward a few weeks later, a couple came to me with the same intense concern, yet this time from the opposite angle. Dan, we're not sure we will ever feel settled here with people who hold such conservative positions. We need a church that doesn't harbor such oppressive beliefs. I tried to persuade them that our church was a space for both conservatives and progressives to dwell in community together. They made it clear they'd be looking for another church. Dan writes, I grieve that both of these folks could not stay in the mix together. They were repelled by each other. Rather than moving toward one another, despite their differences, they chose more distance. You know, Dan's, Dan's not alone in this. I have, I've heard similar sentiments shared with me over the years. It leaves me wondering, how does the Colossian church keep it all together? How do they stay together as a congregation? How can they be that expression of love, uh, particularly if they were in our situation in a world that tries to move people to polarize, to polarization? Well, it might have to do something with their motivation. In verse 5, Paul identifies that motivation as being hope. A hope that is laid up for you in heaven. A hope that is heard in the gospel. By this point in our text, we've already heard three big categories that that serve throughout Paul's ministry and his writings. Uh, We know those as faith, hope, and love. We hear that language throughout even this first chapter of Colossians. Faith, of course, here is in Christ Jesus and love. Uh, for all the saints. Uh, we've already s- spoken to that here. Those seem rather accessible to us. At least we can understand uh, what those might be. But what about hope? What about this particular motivation for the church? What exactly are we hoping for? What is the Colossian church? What is their hope for? Well, a number of commentators say the same thing, but I chose to use Doug Moo uh, here in this case to summarize Christian hope. He says this, it's the totality of blessing that awaits the Christian in the life to come. Paul speaks similarly of hope elsewhere. He talks about this in Titus 1. He says, the hope of eternal life that God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Or even Peter will write as well on this note when he talks about living hope. He identifies it as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. For these Christians in Colossae, Their present faith in Christ and love for the saints is rooted in a promised future, a future that is guaranteed by God. And that promised future, the focus of such hope, of their hope, is witnessed to in what is called this word of truth, that is the gospel. Now, word of truth, that's just another way of saying that the message here is reliable. It's a reliable message. The gospel then stands in stark contrast here to any kind of false teaching. Why? Well, quite simply, false teachings cannot be relied upon and therefore cannot offer a basis for hope. Now, on the other hand, the gospel's reliability, again, that word of truth, is confirmed, as Paul will say here in Colossians, by the results it is achieving. Results that are occurring globally, but also results that are happening there locally in Colossae writes us in verse 6, Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. 
And we've already seen how the initial fruit here, that that initial fruit is, is love. But this idea of bearing fruit and growing, uh, that actually harkens back to a bigger theme in Scripture as well, a bigger project, you might say. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 kind of starts us on that course for that story when God says, be fruitful and multiply. But this is more than reproductive procreation here in mind. Rather, as we read through the Hebrew Bible and into the New Testament, we see that God is recreating faithful image bearers. That's Genesis language there. And doing so through the gospel. And that's happening right here in Colossae. Which brings us again back to that, that pesky theme that keeps coming back in chapter 1 here. Transformation. We saw the transformation of one who was Saul to be known as Paul. We see the transformation of a colleague of his named Timothy there in chapter 1 who is referred to as a brother. We see the church at Colossae who embraced the gospel message and are now known as sisters and brothers. Again, that covenant language. And we even see a character here named Epaphras, one who shows up both in Colossians and is also named in Philemon, but who's referred to as Sindulas, who is this co-slave, this co-laborer. It's important to note that that particular term is one that Paul uses very conservatively. It's not one that shows up. He doesn't just throw that around. He's talking about one who is all in. Uh, with him in this gospel, who's all in for Jesus. And here's who this Epaphras is. So that's transformation. That's transformation. And we also know that this transformation comes from God. And what's more, it also transforms us and gives us a capacity to love. And we see that there with Colossians, which is said to be in the Spirit. Again, it's all God. It's all grace. And so our response Hashtag gratitude. It's gratitude. But here's what Paul's going to do here in the next section, beginning in verse 9. Still more transformation to come. There's still more. If you read this next section, it had the thought it sounded a bit like the previous one as you read through there. Uh, you're not alone in that. In fact, there's a number of parallels that exist throughout uh, the passage there, particularly if you compare verses 3 and 6 in the first section, you compare those with verses 9, 10, and 12. You'll see similar language uh, between those paralleling each other. So much so, um, and we're not going to unpack those specifics here, uh, but so much so that it appears that this is deliberate by the apostle. That what he's trying to communicate in doing this to the Colossian church is that they need to continue in what they started. They need to keep going. They need to stay the course. They need to, if we might add just another one here, they need to keep, keep growing. And that's Paul's prayer for them. That's what, that's what he's praying and hoping for them, uh, for this group. And here are the specifics of that prayer. The first one is this, that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord. What, does, what knowledge does Paul wish that they uh, might know? Well, we commonly associate God's will with uh, making decisions in life, choices that uh, you and me might make in our personal lives for how we might address situations now to prepare for the future. But at this point, what he's doing, Paul has something different in mind. He wants the church to know Jesus Christ. He wants the church to know Jesus' work all the more. And we'll find next week that he wants them to know the person of Jesus Christ in particular. 
which has real effect for all the world, but also for them here as a congregation. This latter part is hinted to in Paul's qualifying knowledge with wisdom and understanding. These all come by the Spirit and together lead to discerning truth and the related good decisions that stem from such knowledge. The aim here, of course, is that they would lead from this knowledge, not just have trivial knowledge and be able to answer in a game, but rather that they might lead appropriate lives that are according to the standard of Jesus Christ. Christian obedience is what we would call that. The second thing we see here that Paul prays for them is that they would bear witness to the qualities associated with this Christian obedience. And he outlines those using four participles. Now, this whole section actually is pretty crazy as far as Greek's concerned because it's all one giant sentence from verse 9 all the way down to 14. It's just one big sentence. And so it's kind of like going, what part goes with which part over here? There are these four participles that show up here. Uh, Two of them seem to be related, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Those seem to be connected because of the syntax there. There's actually a connecting piece between them. And it seems to echo closely what we hear in verse 6. But here what Paul is praying is that this church would keep on with the gospel especially with what the gospel has already accomplished in them, that that growth would continue uh, to happen. He also prays that they would be made strong. Uh, This is the third one we see here. God gives what God demands, is is what some people might say here. And God provides to God's people here, uh, is made uh, because of, again, the Greek here. It's continuously available. Uh, This is something that's in what's called a present participle. So it's it's continuously available to the people. It's not going to run out. The storehouse is huge. The supply is great, and the one who offers it to them uh, comes with no limit. Of course, the purpose of such supply is as important as the strength itself here. Endurance and patience. Endurance and patience, which play a big part in keeping on, on continuing strong. Both of these are are key to the life of the disciple in every century, not just the first century. Uh, But I I, I like how N.T. Wright, uh, what he calls these here in his commentary, He says, the weapons one needs to live in the world undaunted by its crises and panics. That's what Paul's praying for them, that they might have those tools, those resources uh, to deal with these things that we see as crises and panics. How much could we use those today in the crises and the panics that we face in our own life? Wright goes on to say this. He says, uh, when it comes to endurance... Uh, He he says, it's what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. And then he says, patience here is what they show to an apparently impossible person. So whether it's a situation or a person, uh, Paul is praying that they might be strengthened uh, for that course, what they might face. Have you ever faced an impossible person in the church? Have you been confronted by an impossible situation? That's what the apostle's praying, that we might have strength to endure. The Colossians might have strength here. And lastly, we see this one. It's giving thanks. It's all from God again. It's all grace here. The Christian life reminds us of this over and over, that we are to live lives of gratitude, of giving thanks. Not bitter, not self-protective lives. Not lives that are closed and clenched like a closed, clenched fist. But generous, embracing lives. Freely we have received, is what Jesus said. Freely give. We are not only saved by grace, but you and me are supposed to live in grace. Joyfully giving thanks is a life of witness of what God has, is, and promises to do in our lives. 
together. So how is this all achieved? You see this uh, note here that Paul writes, the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transformed us or transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, just how radical is that idea? Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. says, When the Most High apportioned the nations... When he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods. The, Lord, the Lord's own portion was his people, Jacob, his allotted share. So we said before, the disinherited, the Gentiles now have an inheritance. They're called saints. They're rescued from darkness, lives of chaos, lives of evil, lives facing judgment. And then now a people who belong, a people who've been rescued, a kingdom people in Christ a people who've been redeemed, who've been freed, who've been forgiven. That's some encouraging word from Paul. That's an encouraging prayer from Paul. Like I said, gratitude. Absolute gratitude for all that God has given and done. I wonder if that has an impact for us today. I wonder if these words written so many years ago uh, have a word for us here at John Knox, here in our own community, or even American Christianity going across this entire country. But let's stay locally. Let's stay specific to who we are. I'm sometimes asked, and I'm reminded of two stories here as we close. Um, I couldn't help but think about these stories as I kept reading, reading this text over and over throughout the week. But I oftentimes get asked what I'm reading, and I think that's probably because of the work I do. There's an expectation that your pastor is going to be uh, reading stuff all the time. And just to make sure no one panics, I am reading. I don't want to disappoint anybody in that. There are a number of things I'm reading. Um, if you're interested in what those are, you can always email me. I'd be happy to share. Um, but over the last couple of years, when I've been asked that question, I usually answer first with a smile. People say, hey, Jimmy, what, what are you reading these days? I smile because the first things that come to mind aren't the heady tomes that I tend to read um, throughout the day, but rather books like Dragons Love Tacos, Madeline. I've been recently reading Shel Silverstein's A Giraffe and a Half. Um, and I've been reading a number of books that involve an elephant named Gerald and a pig named Piggy. My daughter, uh, Rory, is two and a half. We spend quite a bit of time reading children's books. We read them every night. We probably read two or three each night. Uh, we read them throughout the day. And so that's some of the books that I've been reading these days. And one of those books, as you might think with picture books, what, what type of value could be found there? Well, they have some important stuff to say. There's one particular one, a uh, book that we've been reading over this last week, but we've had for uh, some time now called Finding Winnie. It's the story of Winnie the Pooh, uh, the bear uh, that served as the inspiration there's a line on, a, on one of the pages there that captured my attention. That I thought it was appropriate here for us. The writer writes this, Sometimes I said, you have to let one story end so the next one can begin. Of course, the story here was the original bear and how it became these fictional stories about this bear with Christopher Robin. But I wonder in our case if there are some stories in our own lives that we need to let end so the next one can begin. There are stories that we've grappled with, that we've held so strong to, that they don't, they're not allowing us as a community to be that grateful, loving people. 
but rather they're forming a narrative that's far different than what we intended. It wasn't the intention all along. But for some reason, they continue to hearken us back to a place of chaos and darkness. They take us to an unloving place that we might need to let one story in so the next one can begin. Well, let me offer a, a way forward here for us. A friend of mine uh, invited Andrew and I to come over to their house for dinner. And as we sat down at the dinner table, we were gathered there uh, back in Connecticut at this dinner table. And they said, hey, there's something that we'd like to do before, before we go and eat the food and enjoy those things together. We'd like to go around the table. And we use the expression when we talk about praying around a meal, we say we'd like to say grace. Well, this family literally said grace. They began to tell stories from their day, things they were grateful for, things that God had allowed them to see and be part of, and they shared that. Uh, story. Each one, different folks, different ages, different experiences. The youngest one, the story sounded far different than the oldest ones, but they weren't too different. They're places of gratitude. And I wonder if that might be a healing balm for us, a way that we might live into this Colossian story today, how we might express our own thanksgiving to pause and to stop even daily, even more times, maybe just even at every meal, to not only pray, but to say, what are we grateful for? Where have we seen God at work? Where have we seen fruit being born in the life of our community, in our own lives, the lives of each other, and then to offer a prayer? I think when we do that, here's what happens. We tell the story of what we're grateful for, and then we offer a prayer. It sounds a little bit like Colossians chapter 1. May that be for us the gift of God's word lived in our midst. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love. A love that has been expressed through the ages in a story that was told so long ago and continues to be told with each generation. A story of your grace. A story of your action. A story of your pursuing us and rescuing us from darkness and bringing us into a kingdom of light. So, Lord, on this day, I just offer before you uh, my own heart, but also pray on behalf of our entire congregation. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of love in the Spirit. We thank you for the gift of the Father who pursues us and loves us, who enables us to live lives of strength that we might serve uh, the living God faithfully. Lord, we pray for anyone who is watching this broadcast today, who is participating in worship here, uh, who may feel distant and far away. We pray, Lord, that you'd bring them close, that they might know the fruit of the gospel in their own life, that they might know their Creator's love for them. And for each one of us, Lord, who have followed the path of discipleship, sometimes in a curvy road, uh, we pray, Lord, that you'd make our steps to be straight in the days ahead, that we might serve you all the more, and that we might lift up even more expressions of gratitude. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.